Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Polluted water gushes into Tampa Bay from an old fertilizer plant at Piney Point. Governor Ron DeSantis outlaws COVID-19 vaccine passports in Florida. And the legislature advances state budget proposals loaded with federal stimulus money. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and those are some of the stories I'll be discussing today with Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy and Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. But first... That music means it's time for some number picking. Gentlemen, uh, you have some numbers today. How about you, John? Uh, Zach, my number this week is a one. You're a 60s classic rock fan, and I know you know that one has been called the loneliest number. It is, it is, and uh, I think we can build on that. How about you, Antonio? Well, we're one, but we're not the same. Uh, So I'm going to go with uh, 28 this week. 28, and I'm right in the middle with an 11. Remember those numbers, folks. Uh, We'll tell you what they mean in Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, Florida has a long and sordid history with the phosphate industry, which has mined phosphate ore extensively throughout the state to turn it into commercial fertilizer products. The environmental impacts of phosphate strip mining have been debated for decades, and one particular site has been a source of controversy in the Tampa Bay region going back many years. That site, the old Piney Point fertilizer plant that took phosphate ore and turned it into uh, the commercial fertilizer in Manatee County near Bradenton, has long loomed as a potential environmental disaster. And last week, those warnings came to fruition when a liner in a wastewater containment pond leaked causing a breach in the pond wall and a frantic effort to pump polluted uh, water out of that pond before the wall collapsed. That polluted water is being dumped into Tampa Bay. Now, after years of inaction, Florida officials are jumping to attention. John, there's been a flurry of activity surrounding Piney Point in the legislature this week. Tell us about it. Well, the, the Piney Point catastrophe has you know, clearly become national news, and I couldn't help but notice that Governor DeSantis looked pretty grim when he had to hastily schedule an Easter morning uh, news conference on the issue after urging well, – well, I'm sorry, he had already issued a, an emergency order and uh, brought in more state pumps and cranes and other resources to try to stave off the uh, leaking liner around this industrial waste site. But uh, yeah, not, not the best uh, Easter Sunday for the governor. No, not at all. I think he was looking, you know, more for chocolate Easter bunnies out in the backyard <laughs> with his children, uh, but here he is sitting in a conference room in uh, Bradenton. But uh, DeSantis of course has tried to make a name for himself on the environment, having come into office months after the red tide and blue green algae blooms in the, uh, in the Gulf, in the Atlantic, how they had sandwiched the state and kept people off the beach and closed businesses. Uh, You know, out of that, he was looking to spend two and a half billion dollars over his four years on improving water resources. And now while this Piney Point disaster is a different kind of water problem, one of the solutions pumping nitrogen rich water into Tampa Bay to ease the risk of flooding and worse, that, that that's something that threatens to spawn more algae outbreaks across Tampa Bay. So uh, th- that has certainly gotten the governor's attention on one of his uh, you know major policy priorities. So, uh, you know, at the Capitol, even before Piney Point, lawmakers were going along with the governor's water request this year. Uh, They are putting even more than the $625 million that he wants uh, into water projects. Uh, uh, Right now, the the Senate, though, is also looking to put um, $200 million in federal stimulus money into 
presumably trying to empty the wastewater reserves at uh, Piney Point and uh, then also ease the environmental problems that these uh, reservoirs have caused. Uh, it, it, that That's a huge project and uh, probably will take years, but the Senate this week added an amendment to its budget to uh, get the Piney Point problem into budget negotiations with the House. Uh, the House hasn't said how it views the move, uh, but uh, I was talking to the Senate President uh, Wilton Simpson uh, yesterday evening, and he was saying uh, that he seems to think that there's no, uh, you know, dispute with the House on this, that it's something that I think DeSantis is going to want to put behind him, as Simpson said. So this federal money uh, coming from the Biden administration and the Democratic-controlled Congress uh, to finally clean something up that uh, Florida officials have tried to ignore for years, it looks like it's uh, it, it, it's going to happen, and uh, it's going to happen fairly, uh, fairly swiftly. And this seems like a win-win for DeSantis. I mean, the, not the catastrophe, but, uh, you know, the fact that he can come in and be the one to clean this up. He wasn't governor, um, you know, I mean, this this has been a problem for many, many years, but he wasn't governor then. And, you know, the problems, uh, you know, you could kind of sort of point back and say, well, you know, they might have let it go uh, continue, but I'm uh, putting an end to it right now. And he's able to get this money from the federal government uh, and and solve this problem once and for all. That, that really doesn't happen often with environmental issues, right, John? I mean, we've seen nagging issues um, that go on for decades, like Everglades uh, restoration, uh, these algae blooms that keep coming uh, back up, red tide, things like that, the problems with the springs. If the governor can can take some of this federal money and say, look, here's one thing that we're never going to have to deal with again, Piney Point, which which has been um, you know, debated in this part of Florida uh, for decades. Um, you know, th that's a that's a pretty strong um, you know, selling point for him, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, it's something, you know, very good politically for him, uh, for, for coastal communities that uh, have you know, been alarmed by what they're seeing here. But of course, you know, remember too, as you, as you draw the analogy to the uh, Everglades restoration, we are indeed at the early point of this where, you know, you can declare $200 million uh, is going to be targeted toward this effort and that is going to solve the problem. Well, we'll see if that really works or whether that $200 million mushrooms into much, much more money over the years because, you know, I don't think anybody has any real handle on the extent of the uh, environmental damage there and how long it may take to you know actually clean it up yeah as we all know these early estimates for how much something is going to cost often uh, tend to be wildly below what they uh, end up being and and so uh, you know if it takes a lot more money that could could uh, be a concern as to where some of that is going to come from and you know while you know they might be able to put piney point behind them you know one of the things that came up there was a special uh, committee meeting uh, in the legislature last night just to discuss Piney Point, and they talked about all the other phosphogypsum stacks around Florida. You know, Piney Point is just one of them. Now, it's a very old one that was permitted before new environmental standards, which is something the DEP secretary repeatedly pointed out as lawmakers tried to you know, ask him and, and raise concerns about whether this could happen with other phosphogypsum stacks, which have, you know, similar setups where they have a big pile of mine mine waste, uh, and then they put these um, containment ponds with some of the, the wastewater on top of them. And so 
there was a lot of questions about whether uh, these th- there could be other environmental disasters at these phosphogypsum stacks. So so even if he puts this issue behind him, there's still going to be questions about whether the state should be doing more to address some of the um, legacy pollution from from uh, phosphate mining. Uh, and there's also questions about whether the Florida regulators, um, you know, really contributed to the problems here. And I don't know how much introspection there's going to be, but uh, DEP Secretary Noah Valenstein did say last night during the committee meeting that the DEP, sh- um, you know, uh, one big lesson to learn from this is that when the state has the chance to shut down some of these sites, they should seize it and, and uh, you know, get rid of them once and for all, which the DEP did have that chance with Piney Point back in 2001 when a previous owner went bankrupt DEP stepped in and they were operating the site and they they did some things there uh, they they actually had to discharge some water then because the site was dangerously full of water that could spill over and they did some things to install a liner and clean it up but then instead of closing it down once and for all they turned it over to another private company to try and reinvent the property and make it financially viable and that company also went into bankruptcy and then there were uh, other spills and it's just become an ongoing problem ever since then. So there was a little bit of introspection by DEP that maybe they should have done things differently in the past. And and, uh, I wonder, you know, there, there could be continuing questions from some corners about whether DEP is doing enough to prevent things like this from happening. Um, But they're certainly taking action now. Well, while Piney Point is the rare issue that has diverted attention away from the COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic rages on and there were some new developments in Florida recently. Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order outlawing so-called COVID vaccine passports. The governor is basically preventing businesses and other organizations from requiring proof of vaccination before entry. These vaccine passports uh, have been discussed for everything from professional sports games to cruise ships. Antonio, how's the issue playing out here in Florida? Well, gentlemen, it's leaving a lot of people really perplexed. Look, regardless of whether you agree with the way the governor carried out the reopening of the pandemic economy in the past year, uh, there is no question he correctly read the public mood in pushing for bringing businesses back and fast. And, and regardless of whether you agree with the way the governor handled the reopening of schools, there is no question that public sentiment also favored a return to the classroom. You know, the governor's mantra, as we have discussed on this podcast before, goes something like this. You know, I reopened the economy and gave you your jobs back. Uh, it's a point that he has made at his public appearances, including one that we covered in West Palm Beach late last year at a restaurant at the Okeechobee Steakhouse in which the governor proclaimed he would not let anyone shut down the economy again. And it's a, a, an, an issue that he has repeated fairly uh, frequently, including at the uh, state of the state address back in early March to open the legislature. Now, it is also a very popular mantra. And one can argue it's that's why his popularity has been rising steadily in the past few months, which is why the vaccine passport executive order is so confounding. You know, the fact is that Florida's unemployment rate remains above 5%. To get it under 3%, which is where it was before the pandemic, Florida needs a return of mass market tourism, including, for example, the massive cruise ship fleet that has been dry docked for more than a year. But to get mass market tourism back, including you know, full occupancy or much greater occupancy of theme parks, you need to cater to people who have been vaccinated, at least at the start. Look, no one's saying that, um, you know, that this is the way it's going to be forever. 
but at least to get these big tourism draws going, you know, this is this is this is the start. That's the starting point. Um, and the only way to prove you have been vaccinated is to show proof. Hence the embrace of the so-called vaccine passport, which is why banning these documents, you know, is, is so problematic for a lot of businesses. You know, even universities um, have, you know, there's a South Florida University that a week ago said that, you know, they want to return to full classroom instruction in the fall. But students and faculty will have to show that they've been vaccinated. And then one of the, uh, the, the, the officials who was speaking was questioned about what would you expect a legal challenge, not really from the governor, but rather from students or, or faculty. And, and this university official said, no, it, this, this is not that different than, than the public schools asking that kids have certain vaccines before they start school. Um, let me also point out the report this week by Palm Beach Post, Christine Stapleton, showed that, you know, Speaking of tourism, that every major cruise line's return to sailing plan included some sort of vaccine proof or passport. Uh, you know, the, the cruise lines understand this, the schools understand this, the universities understand this. It, it, again, doesn't mean that this will be the case always in the long term, but you, you, know, you can't operate an economy divided against itself, half vaccinated and half not. That much, I think, the governor, uh, people will agree with the governor. But at the very start, that's the path, and no one questions that except the governor, which is why we are hearing so many people privately scratching their heads as to why a pro-business, pro-open-the-economy governor would take a step that seems to delay reopening a vital sector, not least of which last you know, on, on Wednesday, the Miami-Dade County mayor sort of called out the executive order saying that she was you know, looking forward to working with the governor on the executive order to make sure it, it, it can allow the cruise lines to operate. This is a major employer in South Florida. It's a major draw. And, um, you know, even the Miami-Dade County mayor has obliquely criticized or at least, you know, called out to some extent this, uh, you know, the executive order. Now, some people have argued that the vaccine passport executive order is, is consistent with the governor's opposition to example for, you know, the mask mandate, that it's an infringement on personal freedom and choice and even privacy. You know, except the mask mandate doesn't go as far as vaccinations and permitting, you know, a lot of these major businesses to get back ramped up to full power. Uh, ditto for pro and college sports stadiums. Um, you know, economists and public health experts we have talked to have said as much. Um, now, perhaps you know, the political calculation here is that from the governor's standpoint is that siding with the anti-vaccine crowd will pay political dividends, probably particularly in the Republican base. But you have to think that the economy, the economy reopen electorate is in, even in Florida, a much bigger, bigger piece of the pie than the anti-vaxxers. And so you mentioned the, the mask mandate and, and personal freedom, but don't don't businesses also have that freedom to serve whatever? I mean, like to, to set their own rules for their businesses. I mean, I know you, you can't discriminate against people. Uh, you know, you can't discriminate against you know, uh, based on race or, or gender or things like that. But is it is it discrimination to to uh, uh, to say that you have to be vaccinated? I mean, is that what the governor's arguing? Because typically he's 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 very pro business, you know, let businesses op be open, let them let them, uh, you know, set their rules. I mean, uh, he's uh, isn't this uh, something that goes against some of that pro business attitude? Absolutely. And that's what's got people sort of so perplexed. It's like, wait a minute, why, you know, why why take this action that really steps into the realm 
of a business making a, a, a decision about their op, their ability to operate at mass volume and doing so safely. Um, the, you know, the, it's not that you know the, the, the governor, the executive order prevents a business, and you know not just you know tourism businesses, but universities and others from determining you know what's best for their employees and their customers. And I think that's what has got people so confounded that, you know, yeah, we, we understand that you don't want, you know, vaccine discrimination here. But at the same point, you know, to to take an order that is so broad, I think, has, has left people very confused, particularly, you know, looking at a governor who has been so pro-business, so pre, pro-reopening businesses and keeping them open and a decision decisions on on the part of the governor, you know, DeSantis for that we we should say have been very popular in this state. And as you pointed out, uh, Antonio, we all we do already have requirements for for vaccinations. It's called the school system, and and uh, your kids have to uh, get vaccinated uh, before they go to to school, or uh, with some exceptions for sure. The it is also worth pointing out that the governor is going to be in Miami today. He's going to be at the port of Miami, and uh, you know, so the, he might discuss how this affects the. Cruise ship industry. We'll see if he softens his approach uh, at all. The cruise ship industry has uh, been very pro-vaccine uh, passports. Well, while the crisis situations at Piney Point and the COVID-19 pandemic play out this week, the Florida legislature advanced budget proposals to help address both situations. The Florida House and the Senate both move forward with their budget plans. The two chambers must decide how to use billions in federal COVID-19 relief money. They're also benefiting from stronger state tax collections than expected. John, what should people know about what the state, where the uh, state budget stands right now? Well, the House and the Senate have approved uh, different versions of state budgets for the coming year, so they've staked their policy stands, and now comes the uh, the home stretch of the legislature where uh, some wheeling and dealing will uh, occur to settle on a single budget for the year that begins in July. Uh, it's a different looking budget than uh, what anyone thought it was going to look like uh, several months ago. You remember once upon a time, we spent a lot of time talking about how the legislature was facing a $2.7 billion budget shortfall for the next year. That was all because of the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. That figure was set by state economists last August who softened it a bit in December and now they came back this week to say the tax collections are actually $2 billion better than expected. So, you know, there's there's no problem really with money. And uh, oh yeah, on top of that, there's another $10 billion coming from the federal government, the, uh, the American Rescue Plan. So uh, legislators could be, you know, burning dollars here for warmth on uh, when we get our sometimes chilly spring evenings in Tallahassee. <laughs> but uh, but instead, the Republican small government conservatives have found a way to uh, still cut some people, you know, which is remarkable. The, there are cuts in the budgets for universities, for um, hospitals. Uh, affordable housing is taking a hit. Uh, now, now I say small government, uh, but but it's really more a philosophy built on favoring some people, policies, and you know institutions more than others. Uh, affordable housing—that's not getting what it could have. Uh, hospitals are losing some state payments for treating Medicaid patients, even as those 
Medicaid rolls have climbed with the pandemic and the, uh, the loss of jobs. And uh, universities are getting cut largely because they've gotten some decent funding in the past few years. Uh, Bright Futures scholarships look like they're likely secure for college students, but uh, some other financial aid programs like the, uh, the Ease and ABLE grants that go to uh, students going to private colleges and universities, they're threatened with cuts, at least in the House. Um, businesses, meanwhile, uh, they are favored by Republicans. Uh, they're getting a roughly $1 billion tax cut, first by taxpayers covering what companies owe in unemployment taxes. And then in three years after that, uh, they're going to be getting a reduction in the state's tax on commercial leases. Uh, that's, uh, you know, when companies have, uh, they rent offices, warehouses, and other places. But, uh, you know, given the volume of dollars that are floating around the Capitol right now, there seems to be no reason to cut. And uh, that is something that Democrats are, are, are uh, attempting to bring into the conversation so far you know outnumbered democrats are not really making that much inroads but once negotiations start maybe there will be a little bit of a reconsideration of where some of these dollars are being spent but um you know it's possible that the budget reductions will disappear as the legislature moves forward but uh it's an interesting political balancing act for the Republican legislature, whose, whose members typically campaign on promises of shrinking state government and holding down spending. While, uh, you know, Democrats see no problem with government being an economic driver, that's something that's kind of anathema to many Republicans. And uh, I can still remember when uh, the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank, ridiculed uh, Jeb Bush in his last year as governor, uh, calling him a big government conservative, which he and his brother, you know, ultimately, I guess, were. But it also involved Jeb overseeing a lot of revenue flowing into the state from hurricane rebuilding and then the beginning of the housing boom that really swelled the state budget and provided uh, billions of dollars for him to spend, which he did. But, um, you know, even those booms pale against what we're seeing now with uh, what, you know, amounts to about $12 billion in unanticipated money now available to legislators to spend. They've uh, warned about using one-time dollars like the federal stimulus money on programs that will have recurring needs. That's uh, sort of the anti-growing government standpoint. But we are seeing at the very least uh, Governor DeSantis and Republican legislative leaders talking about pumping a lot of those one-time dollars into infrastructure projects, uh, you know, roads, building, repair those kind of things. And uh, just like the stimulus package Republican leaders in Tallahassee are now getting to spend, President Biden's latest infrastructure package in Washington is being fought by <laughs> Republicans. Uh, you know, funny though, here in the 850, Republicans are in favor of spending it on infrastructure. So, uh, you know, maybe more money means just more headaches for Republicans who don't typically spend. <laughs> there always seems to be some kind of budget fight. And even if there is more money, they still figure out ways to, to fight and squabble yeah. over it. Uh, we'll move on to some numbers here. Antonio, tell us about yours. Yeah, gentlemen, I had 28, although you know, none of, neither one of you guys got my reference to the uh, U2 song earlier. So that left me really disappointed and depressed. <laughs> but but I'm going to go ahead and strive on with my number. Um, 28 stands for the 28th year that... Uh, Former Congressman Alcee Hastings was in office before he passed away uh, on April 6th after a battle with cancer. He is the first, uh, was the first sitting member of Congress in, from Florida in more than three decades to die in office. But it got me thinking that in the current atmosphere of anti-establishment politics and populism, 
you're not going to see members of Congress serving for such lengths of time. You know, there, there was a time, at least it was the norm. This was the norm decades ago. I mean, I remember being a younger reporter and, you know, covering, for example, you know, Claude Pepper, who was a, a New Deal Democrat from Miami who served in the U.S. House for 36 years. Uh, one of his colleagues, Dante Fassell, also of Miami, served in the House for 38 years. And even more recently, Eleanor Ross Leighton, who retired in, in you know, in the, after the 2018 elections, uh, she, she served for almost 30 years. So, you know, there are going to be exceptions to these long termers in office, but, you know, that's just not they're going to be the exception. They're not going to be the rule like, like they used to be. And it was, by the way, I should say it was much the same in the state legislature until term limits were enacted in the early 1990s. Now, there are no term limits on Capitol Hill. But still, we're seeing members of Congress calling it quits after much shorter stints these days. For example, in 2018, Ted Yoho of Gainesville decided to give up his seat after just eight years. And Francis Rooney of Naples, he, he, he called it quits after just four years in, in Congress. You know, others leave the, the House because they lost re-election bids, like Miami Democrats Donna Shalala and Debbie Mercosel-Powell, each of whom just got one term. By the way, the seat that Mercosul Powell uh, lost to incumbent now incumbent Republican Carlos Jimenez, that that has that seat has extraordinarily little longevity. Since 2010, it's been held by five different people. Uh, and that was always been unheard of, you know, and particularly people quitting after a couple of terms or, or losing after just one term. But that's the new politics where longtime incumbency is frowned upon. In fact, it's seen as you know almost like corrupt and undesirable. Now, some political watchers say, you know, the, the, this turnover in, in Congress, particularly in the U.S. House of Representatives, that turnover is one of the reasons why governing is such a challenge these days. In the era of longtime incumbents, lawmakers forged friendships and alliances that allowed them to break bread and pass legislation, even though they were often at the opposite ends of, of the political spectrum. You know, the rapid turnover doesn't allow for that these days, that kind of relationship building and, and networking. And as a result, some of these political analysts say that's why you get gridlock. Now, there are other reasons why politics and government are, are so gridlocked and so stalemated and, and so polarized. But you do have to wonder if, if lack of experience and familiarity with each other and with the process uh, is a major reason why, you know, that we, we have the kind of stalemated politics and governance that we have these days. All right. Rest in peace to Elsie Hastings, who is a, a longtime fixture uh, in Florida politics and the a senior member of uh, Florida's congressional delegation, who was known for for working across the aisle with uh, Republicans, including the congressman over here, Vern Buchanan, who always said that he had a very good uh, relationship uh, with him. John, you never struck me as a as a lonely guy, but you, you picked a lonely number today. Tell us about yours. <laughs> yeah, one is the uh, the number of bills that have passed both houses of the Florida legislature and uh, signed into law by Governor DeSantis. The one bill passed was that big lawsuit limiting bill that made it very hard for to sue businesses, uh, healthcare providers, and nursing homes if somebody contracted COVID-19 on their premises. Uh, that was something that, you know, the business community was really clamoring for, and uh, it, it came out of the legislature pretty quickly. But we're in the sixth week of our nine-week session, and if uh, one bill doesn't sound like a lot, well, you're probably right, especially considering that 18,000, I'm sorry, 1,828 general bills have been filed. Uh, but the Florida legislature is... Uh, 
sort of like an NBA game. You know, much of the action happens in the last two minutes. So we uh, certainly have a lot still to deal with. Now, uh, now last year, just uh, for point of reference, last year, just under 1,700 bills were filed and 191 passed both chambers. So, you know, there's still some hope out there for some of these bills. But whatever the final numbers is, uh, you know, don't expect DeSantis's 100% approval rating on uh, bills to hold up. The uh, governor doesn't veto a lot, but you can expect some to come out of this session once the uh, the bill passing picks up a little bit. Okay, one down, many more to go, including uh, a lot of the governor's priorities here. So we'll see where they land. My number is 11, as in it's been 11 weeks since Sarasota County started its online vaccine appointment system to handle the more than 160,000 seniors who were pressing to get the shot here. The system gave people a digital place in line and they waited weeks typically for their names to be called. Tomorrow, that system will be disbanded and anyone who wants a shot can simply walk up to a vaccine site and request it without an appointment. And that's a big deal. That means in less than three months, vaccine supplies have now caught up with demand and pretty much anyone who wants uh, to get the vaccine can get it immediately. Of course, this isn't just happening in Sarasota where I live, but throughout Florida and throughout the country, it hopefully marks an important turning point in this pandemic. The next step is trying to convince all those people who are still hesitant to get the shot. Well, that wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.